Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these women in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you, and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son." However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal house in Edom. For when David was in Edom and Joab the commander of the army went up to bury the slain, he struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel remained there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. But Hadad fled, Egypt, fled to Egypt together with certain Edomites of his father's servants, Hadad still being a little child. They set out from Midian and came to Paran and took, took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt to Pharaoh king of Egypt who gave him a house and assigned him an allowance of food and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him in marriage the sister of his own wife, the sister of Taphanes, the queen. And the sister of Taphanes bore him Genubath, his son, whom Taphanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Genubath was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers, and that Joab the commander of the army was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me depart, that I may go to my own country. But Pharaoh said to him, What have you lacked with me, that you are now seeking to go to your own country? And he said to him, Only let me depart. God also raised up as, as an adversary to him Rezon the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master Hadadezer, the king of Zobah. And he gathered men about him and became leader of a marauding band after the killing by David. And they went to Damascus and lived there and made him king in Damascus. 
He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Hadad did. And he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. Jeroboam, the son of Nebad, an Ephraimite of Zereda, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the millow and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, And for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you, ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you, and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever." Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was forty years. And Solomon slept with his father and was buried in the city of David his father, And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 106, stanzas 3, 16, 17, and 22. To to raise our children right, to do what's right in the eyes of God. And that often brings us to our knees in prayer before God. Or maybe if you're engaged to be married, at some point as the marriage draws closer, you you sense that responsibility that brings you to your knees before God, asking for wisdom. You want to do it right. 
Elders feel it when they're first installed into office. It's something I feel as I begin serving as your pastor. And it's good. It's good that we sense that that feeling of responsibility that drives us to God to ask for wisdom. God is pleased by that kind of prayer. He clearly was pleased by that in, in 1 Kings 3. But do those prayers continue when those emotions are gone? When the newness and the scariness of the situation wears off, are we still going to God in prayer? Are we still aware of how, how, how wrong things can, can go? Because we do continue to be the same sinful, potentially destructive people that we always have been. And so we ask, how is it possible that someone like Solomon, who had such a good beginning, who prayed so earnestly for wisdom, could end so badly, so destructively? Well, the novelty of having special responsibilities from God, it wore off. And it was replaced by a sense of entitlement. And he became more captivated by the pleasures and the things that wisdom brought him than the God who gave that wisdom in the first place. And so again, the end of a thing is more important than its beginning. It's good to pray when our emotions compel us to pray. That's what Solomon did, and God was pleased by it. But unless we bring ourselves into the presence of God every day, recognizing our need for wisdom in the, in the beginning of a thing as well as in the middle and even at the end, unless we do that, our prayers will cease and we will be at risk of going astray just like Solomon If we stop praying, there's no reason to presume that God will continue to bless us. He only draws near to those who draw near to him. And so if God blesses you in the beginning of your marriage, or in the beginning of your life as a parent, or in the beginning of your ministries, we must remember this is only the beginning, and it's still all by God's grace. We can't let ourselves ever grow used to God's blessings in the sense that we forget to give thanks for them or to pray for wisdom in order to navigate the responsibilities that he gives us. The reality is many of life's greatest tests and challenges come when we're least on guard in our 50s, our 60s, our 70s, towards the end and the middle, the middle and the end of things. And so we see Solomon began well, but he ended so poorly. Now, if we didn't know it from kings, if kings hadn't told us that this is how Solomon ended up, we never would have been able to guess it after reading a book like Proverbs or Song of Solomon. And sadly, later chapters show that much of Judah and Israel followed Solomon's lead. As the king goes so go the people. And that would have been all the more true because the people had learned to trust Solomon. He had shown his wisdom. He had shown his character as a godly man. And so they had seen that in him and they had learned to trust him. And so you can imagine as he went astray, as he started worshiping other gods, many Israelites would have been led to believe, well, if a wise man like Solomon is going down that road, then maybe it's not such a bad road to go down. 
And there's a warning there for us. Be careful who and how you trust. We naturally have certain people whose opinion we, we tend to trust, people whose beliefs we, we tend to adopt as our own without critically thinking through them because we trust those people. That's, that's normal, that's natural, it's almost inevitable. You can't know everything about everything. And so there will be people who we trust. Maybe that's our parents, maybe it's certain politicians, maybe it's certain people on talk radio or certain pastors or theologians. We tend to, to just trust whatever they tell us. But so, one of the things that Solomon's story teaches us, teaches us is we must always guard our trust, lest the people that we trust lead us astray. There's no one in whom we can place full, unguarded trust. They are still human beings with self-deceiving hearts, with wrong affections. Even the best of them are. If there's anyone we could have trusted, it would have been Solomon. And yet he, as a man, even though God guided him to write the book of Solomon and, and the other books, as a man, he proved himself to be ultimately untrustworthy. We cannot put our complete unguarded trust in any human being. We have to always bear in mind that even the best and even the wisest are still capable of sin and error. Instead, we should cling with our whole heart to God and to his word. That can be trusted all the way. He is, his, his word is the ultimate source of truth. And so Solomon rose to the great heights of wisdom that God had given him, but then he fell to the lowest depths of sin and stupidity and depravity. And so by the time we find Solomon in verses 5 and 6, we find him following after these other gods and even building high places and shrines for them. Verse 7 says that he built a high place for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. And it says on the mountain east of Jerusalem, it adds that little detail because that would have been in view of the temple before the face of God. So the man who built the temple and gave that beautiful speech that we saw last week, he ended up so far from God. Molech also was, was the, uh, the god to whom the Canaanites offered child sacrifices, burning their infants alive as an offering to that god. It's the most painful and shameful form of pagan worship imaginable. And on, in all likelihood, that's exactly what his wives did with some of his own children. And so verse 9 tells us, not surprisingly, that God was angry with Solomon for becoming the man that he had become. As I mentioned earlier, one of the clearest things that you see in this chapter is God always keeps his word. He may be slow to anger, but he does not make exceptions even for a man like Solomon. He had already warned Solomon in chapter 9, we saw this last week, that if Solomon did turn away from him, you or your children, God said, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I've given, him, given them, and the house that I've consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword 
among the nations. And that's what we see the Lord begins to do in the rest of this chapter. He raised up adversaries against Solomon to begin undoing the kingdom that he had built through Solomon. Tells you a lot about God and his priorities. After all the work that that God had orchestrated to build up the, the glorious kingdom of Israel, he's not at all afraid to tear it all down in response to idolatry that exists at its heart. He will not tolerate other gods. He will not be worshipped as one of many options. He does not share his glory with human inventions. Well, this chapter mentions three adversaries that God raised up against Solomon, two from outside the kingdom and one from within. Hadad the Edomite has a very interesting story. We're told that he hated Israel and that hatred was understandable. When he was just a child, perhaps even just a toddler, he was the only male who had escaped from from, the camp, from a merciless campaign by David and Joab. You can read about that in, in Chronicles. And he only survived because some of the royal servants snuck him out of the kingdom. Joab and David were determined to kill every male in Edom. It was absolutely merciless. And in some ways, Hadad reminds you of Moses. He was raised by Pharaoh's own family. He was... Uh, an attempt was made to kill him when he was a boy. He was raised by Pharaoh's family. In, in, in verse 21, it even tells us how, Pharaoh had, how he had asked Pharaoh to let him go, and Pharaoh initially resists, but then he insists, and, and he is let go. It almost seems like a, a miniature repeat of Moses' story. And if there's anything to learn from, from that connection, it's that God has every right to start the story all over again with a Gentile people if Israel forsakes him. Now, it's not to say Hadad was a good man. Probably he was just as cruel and heartless as Joab and David had been to him. But his story is there to put Israel to shame. God has every right to work with whomever he pleases. You see the same thing with, with Rezon, who was a rebel in Syria. He rebelled against his master, Hadadezer. And just like with Hadad, it's interesting that the author deliberately highlights the similarities to, to stories that we already know. So verse 24 says, He was a leader of a marauding band after the killing by David. Just like David, he was persecuted by his own king. And just like David, he gathered around himself a group of mighty men and eventually became king in Syria. And so it seems like these stories stand as a warning against Israel. Just as God raised David up, he can just as easily raise someone else up in the same image as David, but to oppose him. David and his son Solomon had nothing at all that they did not receive from God. And that should have served as a warning to Solomon. Now Jeroboam, the third adversary, was not a Gentile, but still he wasn't from the line of David, David either. And so he is, in that sense, still an outsider. We read he was a very capable, able worker, strong leader. And so Solomon had... had promoted him to be the leader of the forced labor over Ephraim and Manasseh, which really covers 
just about all the northern tribes, because those were by far the biggest tribes. One day, it says, as Jeroboam was leaving Jerusalem on some business, the prophet Ahijah met him on the road, and through him, God announced that he would tear the kingdom away from Solomon and give ten tribes to Jeroboam. Now, God raised up Jeroboam as a tool to punish Solomon. That's very obvious from the text. He was a a tool in God's hands. And if we know the rest of the book of Kings, we know that he turned out to be a pretty wicked man himself. But one of the things that, that struck me as I read this text, perhaps it struck you as well, is God's graciousness towards Jeroboam. Even though he was just a tool raised to punish Solomon and bring Judah to repentance, still God showed every grace to Jeroboam. And his promises to him were sincere. So you look at verse 38, God says to him, If you will listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you, and I will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. So God shows an immense amount of graciousness towards a man who who wasn't even an heir of God's promises. Well, we can learn something about God's character from the way that he deals with Jeroboam. Even though he was just a tool in God's hands, God gave him real promises, and God meant those promises. That's the way that God works. He owes his grace to nobody, and sometimes he extends it to the most undeserving people in order to shame those who had earlier received his promises and turned their backs on him. And even though those people are tools in God's hands, nevertheless, he still means his promises to them. You see, in in many respects, we are the Jeroboam in this story. God showed his grace to us as Gentiles, people that weren't heirs of God's promises, in order to shame his chosen people who were the Jews. His everlasting, enduring promises were theirs, not ours. But now we have been given those promises, and God means those promises to us, just like he meant them to Jeroboam. That said, we must now be very careful. If we read on, we see that Jeroboam himself ultimately walked away from the Lord, and God did not hesitate to utterly destroy his house. He was even harsher on Jeroboam than he was on Solomon. Solomon still had the enduring promise from David. Jeroboam did not have that promise. And so, if we're going to extend this analogy, this should serve as a warning to us. If we have received God's grace, in order to shame God's people, the Jews, who are the heirs of God's promises, then let us be very careful, lest we turn our backs on him, as Jeroboam did. You might think of Paul's warning in Romans 11, where he uses the analogy of of branches on a tree and says, if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. They were broken off because of their unbelief. You stand firm because of your faith. So do not become proud 
but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. We are the Jeroboam in this story. We've been given the opportunity to reign with Christ because God's chosen people, the Jews, uh, chose not to reign with him. And so let us be very careful not to follow Jeroboam's lead and ultimately walk away from him because he doesn't owe us his grace any more than he did Jeroboam. So we've seen how how Solomon's failure was the consequence of a wayward heart, wrong affections. And as a result, we've seen how his is a very disappointing ending and how God's judgment against him is very severe. Finally, we must also notice that in spite of his failures, in spite of God's judgment, we still also see God's enduring grace toward him because of his promises made to, made to David. So God said to Solomon, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son, and I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So God made a promise to David, and God would keep that promise, even though David's descendants didn't deserve that promise. And this is, this is one of the overarching themes. You're going to see it again and again in the book of Kings. God is faithful to his warnings, absolutely. We see that with God's judgment against Solomon. But he's also faithful to his promises in spite of Solomon's unbelief. Solomon himself might not have benefited from those promises because he gave up God's grace, but God would still keep those promises because he is a God who keeps his word. And there, the author of Kings leaves us with that thought to remind us of the hope that he himself, the author himself, and all God's people were still looking forward to. Solomon didn't turn out to be the son of David with the everlasting throne that they thought that he would be. And his son, Rehoboam, and the other descendants to follow would also turn out to be a disappointment. But the author of Kings reminds his fellow readers in a dark time to hold on to that promise that God had made to David. Because the promise that God made to David was also a promise to God's people, they could hold on to that even in a time like that. No matter how the kingdom might fall apart under people like Solomon and Jeroboam, no matter how dark things would look, as long as God remembered his promise to David, then those who fear him would also still have reason to hold on to hope. Because that promise to David is a promise of a savior. A king who would bring Israel out of the misery in which they find themselves. Who would establish the throne, not for a while, but forever in righteousness. And not just for half a generation, but for all time. As long as God remembers that promise, which he clearly still does in this chapter, as long as God still remembers, then it's worthwhile for his people also to hold on to hope. 
That's the light that, that shines in the heart of the, the authors to kings. That's the hope that the Holy Spirit himself had given them. They hoped on because God gave them just enough reason to hold on to hope. And so they want to pass that hope on to their readers. God has not yet forgotten his promises, as bad as things might be. And so we shouldn't either forget our hope. Now They hoped for what we know. They were waiting for the Savior, Jesus Christ. The wisdom of God who wouldn't collapse into folly and unbelief. The faithful son of David, whose glory would not only last for half a generation, but forever. The man whose heart would not go astray, whose affections wouldn't be misplaced, who would cling to God with his whole heart and be obedient from the beginning of his life all the way until the very end, even to the point of death on a cross. And he is the king now that is reigning on high. That promise to David is fulfilled, and it will continue to be so forever. And so the work that he did, paying for our sins on the cross, means that we, God's people, for all of our own waywardness, we see ourselves in Solomon, for all of our waywardness and unfaithfulness and misplaced affections, we can come into the presence of God and worship him and be his people that the, the tribes of Israel ultimately couldn't be. And together with him, we can reign. We can establish his kingdom here on earth, first in our own hearts and lives, then in our homes, and even in our communities and in the church through the gospel around the world. We may be Gentiles, tools in God's hand, raised up to shame the Jews, and yet we are still heirs now of the promises. Through the gospel, we are members of the eternal kingdom. And we are called then to carry that kingdom forward to the nations through the gospel. So then, let us look to Christ, not to any, any other kings who have come before, but to the only truly wise king who we know will not let us down. And let us, unlike Solomon, cling to him with our whole hearts. Amen.